Yeah, so hey there to the K Town is Okay listenership. It has been too long. Annyeong. Well, too long, like two weeks. But yeah, two weeks is two a weeks long too time. long. <laughs> Don't cry, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, two weeks after this episode, it'll be like the new year, something like that. Wild. So. Okay, so hi, Jimmy. Hi, Helen. How's it going? It's going very well. It's great to see your face. Yes. And you know what? It's great to see your face. Yeah. And for the first time ever, we're not just looking at each other. There's another person. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Or for yay! the first time ever. <laughs> yes. Oh, really? I'm the first guest ever? Yes. Ooh, Susan. I'm so honored. My name is Susan Park. I'm the founder of Asian Americans for Housing and Environmental Justice. My primary work is in language access for Korean and uh, linguistically marginalized people. And I live in the other Koreatown, Hancock Park. (laughs) Susan is such a pro. We didn't even have to prompt her. You just gave the perfect mini bio. And here we are. Thank you so much for coming, Susan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you don't know Susan Park just yet, you will have recognized her if you tuned into our panel this past November. So Susan was one of our panelists during that momentous evening and conversation. And it's it's been a pleasure getting to know Susan just from the outset. And to know that you're here now as our guest, as our first ever guest, is exciting because I think since the moment we met you, we realized that we have to remain in combo with you about all things K-Town, but all things culture, period, actually. so Yeah, and just having like... Um, Maybe, I don't know um, if this is the right phrase, but like the diasporic experience, the migration story, and just kind of all the things that one traverses in that. But um, yeah, so I think it, uh, I would also like to say to our listeners that there's an interview of Susan as well that is on our website, ktownisok.com. And then uh, we have a link to that panel discussion that we had. It's on YouTube. But the cool thing is, Susan, you reached out to us first yeah, you did. I remember through, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a boss. Yes. Yeah, it was kind of bossish. Yeah. First of all, I want to say that panel was really fantastic. I felt like everyone spoke from a really authentically thoughtful place yeah. instead of repeating like cliches and tropes and like slogans. <sighs> yeah. You know, people really thought like, who am I? Where am I in this space? And what do I, what's my lived experience? And what are my, um, you know, perspectives of not just like seeing other people but meeting other people where they're at I think that's really important yes I did reach out to you first I sent you a video clip of myself speaking at uh, the big Oaxacan rally that happened after the Nuri Martinez scandal yes when Nuri Martinez Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon and others in the room were talking about Koreatown and erasing Oaxacans, you know, calling them slurs, and then saying that no Koreans live in Koreatown. And I know Delia from my CLO. Shout out to Delia. Yeah, we reached out to each other immediately. 
following uh, the news breaking, and then she invited me to speak at the Oaxaca uh. rally. And then I found you, K-Town is okay. And I'm like, K-Town is okay. <laughs> K-Town is Oaxacan and Korean. I'm like, clearly, Jimmy and Helen were just really disturbed by the same things that Odelia and I were. I'm like, I need to get to know them. So I was just like, let me just send this clip. Yes. Yeah. Wow, that was such a powerful clip to to watch. And then it's so incredible, too, because it's like this big rally, and it's out, you know, side, and people are passionate. And the person who was recording you was just, like, so proud to hear you speak. And then the incredible thing about living in modern times is I was, like, watching this incredible video just in bed, <laughs> totally removed <laughs> from, you know, <laughs> civilization, I guess. That was so... Cheering from afar. Yes, yeah, and yeah. after the fact. And after the fact. yeah. But yeah, so then we met for coffee and donuts at this really great place. And Fresh then, cream donuts. Yes, it was so decadent. Yeah. In Rodeo Galleria. Yes, yes. Yes, Rodeo <laughs> Galleria in K-Town. Yes. <laughs> Incredible, yeah. yeah. I mean, I just remember walking in there and seeing Susan early. So that was great to see as well. You were just there. You had your coffee or your drink already. And yeah, I just remember taking a seat next to you and thinking... This this is the kind of Cape Town that I need to be linking up more with. I like to show up a little bit early. Yeah, I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like to be late to the game. Okay, so, you know, first time we met, we had some some treats. So I think it's apropos that we continue our Cape Town is Okay podcast tradition of bringing snacks. So, Jimmy, you have a mysterious brown bag. I have a bag. massive brown bag in front of me. <laughs> so, yeah, I've got some snacks. Mostly bread because I'm a bread head. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Here's, the, oh, let me put that on Susan's napkin. I've got three different types of bread today. This is from the Benito Juarez Market on 8th Street. Oh, and you are a food connoisseur, so actually you might know more than I. So no, Susan will know, like, the um, historical origins of the flour. The whole wheat, <laughs> like sandwich bread, yes. uh, dusted with sesame seeds. This is very kind of Middle Eastern, North African influence. That is so cool to, to hear you say. That's so cool to hear you say. And then this other bread is like a flaky croissant kind of bread. And there is definitely um, French in inspired, yes. I guess. Yeah, there is French influence in mm -hmm. Mexico. Yes, you do know that. And this is a big kind of boule. And it's split in the center before it's baked. And it's also crusted with sesame seeds. Yes. Mm. And there's probably something inside. You think there's something inside? There is. I think I so. Please, by all means. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's nothing but bread inside. Yeah, there's nothing but bread inside. Okay, that's what we love to do: create anticipation. That's right, for nothing. and just burst people's <laughs> bubbles. So this is um, a white flour bread. It's got a lot of butter and eggs. It's kind of like a brioche and challah type bread. So again, there is that French um, influence in Mexico with the brioche, and then also challah. There is a little bit of a Jewish presence in Mexico. Mm. So. Wow. It would be so cool to get into this further with you, but I'm already, yeah, my... So these snacks, yeah. So I'm already yeah. impressed. Yes, so please. So these kinds of breads are typically a little bit dry. Yes, they are. They're supposed to be. And they're dry. This, these kinds of um, baked goods are dry uh, all over the world, actually, because you're supposed to have them with 
like coffee, right. tea, or in the case of Mexico, you know, champurado. Yes. You're supposed to dip it in there. And so there's, you can't, you're not going to dip a wet moist mm. dough into it. <laughs> Right, yeah. that's right. Am that's exactly right. You're absolutely okay. onto all of it. Please and oh, go ahead and grab a awesome. bite. Yeah, what about me. Right, you're all the way over there. The, our snacks all yeah, the way no, on this cool, side. No, that's cool though. That's cool. Right. It's a little bit sweet. <laughs> oh, is it really? Yeah, it's a little oh, bit sweet. It's a little bit sweet. So I'm guessing that you're supposed to spread like some jams or even like a little bit of confiture. Mm. That's a good idea. I haven't yeah. tried doing that myself. So, Jimmy, tell us what made you pick these particular breads. Like, mm. are, were you familiar with them, or you know, or were they interesting looking to you? I love bread with sesame seed on it. That's just like a go-to for me. Mm. And this, I think, is a great snack because it's just very savory, kind of like you were saying, Susan. It's dry, so you can have just a bite or so enjoy it with a sip of coffee or tea and the size of the bread is fun too it's kind of just like inviting i love the colors just as well because they're brown and i think of like warmth through them during the winter season i just feel like they've got a warm vibe or atmosphere to them and yeah, they're they're not the sweetest breads either. So I think that's that's like a good deal because I don't know how y'all might feel about sweets. I'm kind of like trying to move past consuming sweets mm -hmm. more regularly. So this is a little bit of a step towards that. It's it might even be a mature bread to bring to the <laughs> table. I don't know. <laughs> right, it's not like King's Hawaiian or something, I guess. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Or like that banana milk that you brought the one time. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, which I claimed was Korea's liquado. <laughs> Still gets me. Yeah. yeah. Well, so along that same vein, yeah. I feel like I brought snacks that have a very different spirit. Okay. Um, so this one I actually honestly brought because I thought um, I was just curious about it. Tofu kimchi, sna oh, kimchi wow. snack. So if you want me to read the Korean to you, Jimmy. It's tubu kimchi snack. Okay. So, you know, very different. Snick. Yeah, snack. That one I, I'd never had. I don't even, I'm not even convinced that it, it's going to be good. I just was curious what that would taste <laughs> like as a snack. We're going to open it up and see. So that's why mm -hmm. I brought that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then this one I actually do enjoy, turtle chips. Have you mm. had these? Susan, have yeah, you? Yeah, I have, actually. I'm, I've never had fan. turtle chips. Yeah, and injermi is a very particular. They have, like, truffle flavor and sweet chili and corn and those things. But, no, I felt like it had to be injermi for today. Wow. So we'll get into what injermi actually means. But I'm curious to Can you hold that up you, one more time? Yeah, I'm curious to have you taste us, Jimmy. Yeah, and then one more, one more. And then... I brought a final thing because it was, you know, the manager special for 99 cents. The manager special. And I don't know which direction I'm pushing um, folks by bringing this. Okay. The crab bong. Fish sausage. Fish sausage, it's really? It's a fish sausage snack with real crab. Crab bong. I'm trying so, that first. So, uh, you know, this is as God intended nature to taste, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a sausage. I have, I, I don't know anything about this, but I just thought this is, I feel like this, this is on special. Yeah. This kind of fish sausage. It's what it's 
to Pacific Rim Asians, you know, mm. Asians who have the Pacific Coast. Um, this is like our Jimmy Jims or Slim Jims mm-hmm. instead oh, of really? meat. Mm-hmm. It's fish. So, well, I'm trying that ASAP. Yeah, so I was curious, uh, particular Jimmy, how you would feel about this. So yeah, these are the snacks that I brought. Wow, <laughs> this is a real snackathon. Yeah, so I'm just gonna like hand these out, and then we can, and you know, they're they're easy to open. So since we're talking about Korean snacks now, I mm-hmm. can't resist showing my age. Okay. I'm 54, so I was born in Seoul, South Korea, October 1969. My family left in January of 75 for Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. But when I was a kid, the only like snacks in Korea for Korean kids, and we were in Seoul, so we had access to things that you know people didn't really have in the provinces. Yeah. It was really, you know, those rice puff crackers, mm-hmm. <laughs> those big round things. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah rice crispy kind of snacks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then some uh, really Japanese-influenced snacks with the seaweed on. Yeah. Know. Oh, wow. And then shrimp chips came out later, like, in America. And we're like, wow, this is great, because we love fishy flavors. Yeah. Pacific Rim Asians. Yeah. Shrimp chips. Yeah. I don't know if I've had too many shrimp chips, but I would love to. I almost brought that today. But oh, you did? No, I, I opted for this sausage instead. For this crab sausage. Yeah. Fascinating. Just fascinating. So just pull the, yeah, pull the red Oh, I'm just tab. seeing this red now. Yeah. And then you'll see like a seam that goes down. So oh, it's I like pretty understand easy to open. Now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. this is something else. Easy access. So I want to see what Jimmy... Oh, I should have taken a picture of you taking your first bite, but... <laughs> You what can do you think? The second. This is fascinating. Right? Mm-hmm. It's definitely on the rubbery yeah. side. So as a food historian and a food maker, I'll tell you how this is made. Okay. Oh, by all means. So it's deboned seafood, you know. Oh, it's if deboned. It's crab flavor, right? Mm-hmm. That means that's just the dominant flavor. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the primary ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get crab and probably some fillers, you know, starch. And seasonings, mm-hmm. and probably some like you know less expensive seafood like a, a mild white fish, mm. and that's completely emulsified. And then um, it may be cooked before it's put in here. There's probably like a gelatin agent, you know, definitely. Or it could be extruded into this, and then it's cooked while it's in this little plastic casing. But wow, yeah, this is this is a. I, I would say this is like a protein pick me up snack. Uh-huh. It's the equivalent of a Slim Jim. Uh-huh. <laughs> See, what I would love is to trace, especially because you were talking about like your your youth and snacks. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know when something like the crab sausage was first introduced to consumers. I feel like it might be indicative of a time and place. Well, this is an extension of Japanese fish cakes. What is it? Oh, no, comment Oh no! I don't know how they say it. it it's that it's white in the center and it's uh, pink red on the mm-hmm. ex- outside. It's I don't know what that's local? called. I can't remember off the top of my head, but that's been around since I was a little kid. And that was like, yeah, this tastes like that actually. Oh yeah. wow! Yeah, yeah, you're right. But okay. then in this format, it happened when I was an adult. I mean, my kids have Korean friends who eat this. Oh, they, they do. Like this. But like, I don't like for me. It, but your generation didn't no, know didn't the crab no, we didn't have sausage, right? We had exactly. fish cakes on sticks, and then we had, I think it's called, I knew I want to look this up. Yeah. 
Because being in community with a real food historian makes me wonder about oh yeah when certain foods are just yeah and the influences you distributed know? out yeah yeah mm-hmm. what happened historically for somebody to be aware of something from another culture to incorporate that or or it may not even be something as benevolent as that it could have been just imposed on you know a people or whatever yeah so it's it's ono. Kamaboko, it's this. Mm. This has been around for a mm-hmm. long time. Yeah. This has been around for a long time, and it used to be like relatively pricey. For and that's like a that's middle, Japanese, it's Japanese origin. Yeah, middle okay. class family. This was like a treat for us, and my family ate well. So, um, so having you know an ono kamaboko like product in this like small fish cake like format, and it's affordable <laughs> for everyone. That just means like foods that were expensive before are just more widely available. Mm. And so I think something like this was introduced probably like 20 years ago. Right. You know, a lot of like the kind of commercial Korean, South Korean products we're seeing now, um, it was introduced like 10, 15, mm. 20 years ago, like in, in wide distribution, I'm mm. talking about, mm. not just a few people in Seoul. I actually compare my notes, you know, 54 born in Seoul. And then I um, read or listen to what co- famous Koreans who are like my age or 10 years younger or even 15 years younger who grew up in different provinces and they were more or less like middle class. Mm-hmm. They talk about access to ingredients. And I, I, I know that my family had like excessive, like extreme access to ingredients. Mm. There's a famous Korean writer. He was from Gwangwon-do. He's about 10, 15 years younger than me. Uh, he said he didn't even have a banana. He didn't even see a banana until he was 10 yeah. And that was on his trip to Seoul with his dad. Yeah. Right. So well, a lot of stuff we see now. Right. It's only been widely available and accessible to South Koreans um, 10, 15, mm-hmm. 20 years max. Mm. Yeah. Bananas were really expensive and hard to come by. That's yeah. what you I hear. Too, and you're right. Mm-hmm. You're a little more than 10 years younger than me. No, I'm, I'm like, I'm five years younger than oh, you. Oh, five years. Yeah. Ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I just remember bananas and then. Uh, my dad, you know, just like bananas were bananas were so precious, and they they weren't even good quality when you were able to get them. So wow. my dad remembers just like gifting his mom um, as he came down from Seoul to Daegu um, with like a box of like brown <laughs> bananas that weren't even that great, you know. But it was really, really, really premium expensive. Wow! And so that was his understanding of like just bananas. And then, of course, bananas were so plentiful here that he just got sick of them, like, in the first... Yeah, how many you know? Korean immigrants of that era came to America and were like, oh, my God, bananas. Bananas, yeah. And then, you know what? You eat too many of them, you get constipation. Yeah, my dad <laughs> You could now, never eat too many of them like that in Korea because they weren't affordable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Globalization in effect. <laughs> anyway, and then the size is all different, too, you know, so... Mm-hmm. But, uh, okay, so we don't have to, like, spend too much time on these, but I'd love for you guys to try. I'd like to try the tofu yeah. kimchi So this is the tofu too. kimchi snack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is really Ooh. sealed. It's airtight. Yeah, so you should oh, try it. Sure. Thanks very much. I wonder if it's going to have a sweetness to it, because Koreans nowadays seem to There's put sweet in everything. There's always a little sweetness to it. Yeah. This is fun. Okay, quieting my mind to really go through the flavors. I don't taste tubu at all, but how could you make tubu a flavor? Yeah, I don't taste tofu. I taste the spice. I do taste a bit of kimchi. Mm-hmm. It's that 
it's that puffy texture though that mm-hmm. Koreans like. Mm-hmm. It's like the rice crisp yeah. snack, the shrimp chip snack. You know, it's like yeah. it's just kind of like it's there's a lot of air in it, mm-hmm. and it dissolves in your mouth. I'm actually disappointed that it's sweet. Mm. I was hoping that um, they would control themselves and make it a little. That's another thing, the sweetening of Korean food, of like commercially made food and restaurant food. I know you've written about that. Yeah, even when I was younger, like, you know, young child in Korea, like sugar was relatively expensive. Wow. And just, you know, I think the history of sugar, right? People don't know that sugar used to be a very expensive commodity for rich people. Right. Until um, beet sugar was invented. Because processing cane sugar was a very expensive endeavor and involved enslaving people and all kinds of nasty stuff. But, yeah, that's sweetening. I would like it if it wasn't sweet. Yeah. But otherwise, it's just okay. Yeah. It is okay. It's on the crunchy side. It's very soft. Mm -hmm. I can can see how... Yeah, like the spice is soft. Oh, I see. And then the texture is also very smooth. Mm -hmm. I can see how it sells well for... People just on the go. One last thing I want to say about why different flavored chips are so popular in America and all over the world is because they are a very affordable way for everyday people to try a different flavor, Mm. a new-to-them flavor. For less than a dollar, for less than two or three dollars, they can try flavors from all over the world. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's a very inexpensive buy-in to try something like kimchi korean food you know they're like indian masala flavored potato chips that is wild yeah an indian masala chip Mm -hmm. i'm not sure that i'm ready for that it's really good i think you're ready like tahini oh really okay yeah where did you find indian masala chips at india's uh, sweets and spices lay's potato company puts them out Oh, I'm Lays not endorsing Lay's. Sure. You know, <laughs> I'm just saying. We're not sponsored. We're not endorsing any. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 This is one of the pleasures of living in LA. We can go to all of these different um, ethnic uh, markets and um, things that are familiar to you are reintroduced in a different way. I went to Filipino market the other day and I just wanted to like literally get everything in the snack aisle because it just all looked so exciting to me. But yeah, with the injomi, it's um, I actually had thought about it might have been a good pairing this morning, but I thought about bringing duck. Mm-hmm. But then I thought about the SMR component of it, and I thought it might be too disturbing for some of our listeners because mm. it's a sticky. Um, I feel like I never felt like a soulful connection to this um, English um, defin or the English name, but rice cake. I just never, you know, it's duck. It's not rice cake. But anyway, that's that's what it's called in, in English. And um, it's very glutinous and sticky and, you know, just really pleasurable for people who are familiar with that flavor. But I have observed in videos and stuff people trying that kind of texture for the first time and they find it kind of um, uh, disturbing maybe. I feel like you're pretty open, so I feel like you would have been fine. But then all of the chewing through that, I thought might be too creepy for some of our listeners. So so, so I, that's why I brought the... the just the chip chips. Version. Just chips. Yeah. One thing I'll tell you about going to like a Filipino market, Mexican market, Korean market, any kind of, you know, um, for lack of a better word, international market, yes. is you go to the canned food section, 
you'll see who colonized the country or who was an imperial force. Can you say more about that? Does the aisle have spam or corned beef Mm. or both? Mm. You go to a Nigerian market, there's corned beef, the British. You go to a Filipino market, you're going to see Spanish canned sardines Mm. and spam Mm -hmm. and and corned beef. Right. Think about, you know, you're not going to see corned beef at a a Korean supermarket Mm -hmm. unless it's a relatively new thing, but you're not going to see that. Right. Shared experiences of the diaspora being colonized and being fed the food made by their colonizers. Yeah. And it's also hurricane food. Mm -hmm. Right. Disaster preparedness food. Yeah. I remember like when I was in school, there used to be whole bags that we needed to prep in case of the big one. Mm -hmm. And it included some of those sausages, like the ones you mentioned, and also spam probably. Just things that will... I guess, yeah, not rot right away in the case of, you know, refrigerating. And it comes in its own protective armor. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. You're right. You're right. But that's like a World War II food or something like that from what, I, yeah. from what I've read. Yeah. Spam specifically. Yeah, World War II, the Korean War, which mm-hmm. was right. also a proxy war for imperialist forces. I have to always add that. <laughs> yeah. We, we need that context. Yeah, that's right. For sure. We need that. Wow. Okay, where do we go from here, Jimmy? <laughs> I mean, going going from colonization, but also food's relation to our culture, I think is is very much in line with what we want to talk about today in terms of the holidays and how we're kind of slightly remaking what might be traditional American holidays mm-hmm. in our own respective ways, because that's simply what we have to do as people who occupy at least two identities through their time out here. So yeah. I haven't been back to Korea in about 20 or so years. Mm-hmm. Wow. But before that, I went back a lot, like probably over 100 times. Wow. I don't recall Christmas being like a public holiday in South Korea mm. until maybe the late 1990s mm. or even early 2000s. I think that's when it started taking off as a public holiday. Mm. And the last few years that uh, actually I lived in Korea during that time. Um, I lived there for four or five years with my husband and my daughter, who was a newborn, oh, and, wow. and like young toddler, because she was a young toddler. And it was celebrated, when it became celebrated, it was uh, much more of a commercial holiday, mm. not religious, and um, like a party holiday. Mm-hmm. Like definitely Lunar New Year was a much more somber, private family affair than Christmas. Yeah, so... and And when... And when people were celebrating, say, more publicly, was that at their local church, generally? No, just, like, public Christmas decorations that are imported yeah. from, like, America. But it doesn't really have any, like, cultural meaning. Korean, North Koreans and South Koreans, largely, it's an irreligious culture. It's not as Christian as people want to emphasize. That's just really emphasized, overemphasized. Um, there is a high rate of Christianity compared to other um, Pacific Rim Asian countries, but I think... In the American context, it's overemphasized, mm. and then the longevity of it is: does it extend? Does it continue to grow multi generationally? Right. I think the language of Christianity is adopted by, um, you know, non Christian c- countries as they come up against like missionaries as as an international language as kind of a tool to engage in the international community. You know, sure. it's a form of respectability politics. 
I'm not a pagan oriental. I believe in Christ too. A pagan oriental. <laughs> I come to America. I have a church community. They're the social aspect. Sure, of it. sure. And it's also kind of a extension of the language of capitalism. That's so now I definitely, I definitely want to hear about your family's yeah celebration of all these various and conflicting uh, tensions. But uh, when you say Korea is irreligious, do you mean non-Christian or do you mean just non-religious at all? Not religious. There's practices of ancestor worship. Korean society is, for the most part, secular. Hmm. Do you mean and do you mean like historically, or you mean even even well into this day? There were there was a survey done, study done around like 1900. They asked um, Koreans about their religious belief. Almost 100% said they're not religious. Mm-hmm. Right. They may b- believe in a little bit of shamanism, folk religions, and things like that, but it's not in the society. It's just mm. not. If you're Korean-American and you're Christian, you probably think all Koreans are Christian. It's just not. It's just not. So it's not in the society. You mentioned that during our panel as yeah. well, by the way. And so. if you watch Korean dramas or Korean media, if Christianity... Even you know shamanism, but Christianity in particular is depicted. It's depicted as a cult, mm. or very critically, very critically, mm. but oftentimes as a cult. You know. So you think artists and writers and storytellers are aware of what you have described, and so they they take Christianity to task, or maybe even the stereotype of Christianity and Korean culture to task a little bit. Yeah, but also I feel like uh, they're. F- kind of um, use it in a fair weather sort of like, you know, they're not, it's just kind of whatever suits what they want to do. So when they are critical of it, they're critical. And then when they want some sort of pure, wholesome moment, then suddenly it's like this beautiful thing. Like, you know, it's, um, so I guess, I I guess going all over the place like that maybe speaks a little bit to Susan, your, um, what you're saying of, they don't have like this deeper connection. Although actually recently I watched this incredible film, um, that that really looks at um, spirituality and stuff, but but those kinds of like more like serious um, works aside, mm-hmm. like in terms of more kind of casual pop culture level mm-hmm. relationship to Christianity, it's um, a little bit kind of um, like it, it, it it's not a tight hold in any particular kind of way. So it'll be depicted in whatever way is suiting whatever they're doing. So Christmas, oh, this <coughs> is like a. F- uh, a good opportunity for us to have lights, for us to hang out with friends, buy mm-hmm. cakes, you know. Yeah, it's a commercial yeah. holiday. Uh-huh. For you. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. a capitalist commercial yeah. holiday. So then going to what Jimmy was saying, so for you with all of these um, different reference points and stuff, uh, did your family celebrate Christmas? Yes and no. Um, my family, I remember we celebrated Christmas like the, the winter before we moved you know, the winter, winter we moved to Los Angeles and my parents just bought us um, chocolate bars, Hershey's chocolate bars, which would have been very extravagant mm. in 1974 mm-hmm. in Seoul, right? Wow. Um, and they said Santa Harabuchi <laughs> came in and hid them, you uh-huh. know, under our pillows or behind something. Oh, and you mean you and a sibling or a few of them? Brothers. Okay, got it. And then we moved to Los Angeles and my aunt had been here been in Los Angeles for like four or five years. She No, more than that. She immigrated to Los Angeles in 1968. She had already been here like seven years. And so she wanted, my brothers and I did not want to move to America. We did not want to leave Korea. So she wanted to introduce us to like 
American consumerism via Christmas. So I remember Christmas 1975, and I have a photo, actually, where she got a big Christmas tree. We need to see that. Got us presents, and this is like this is like America. Mm-hmm. You see, you didn't get you got a chocolate bar in, in Korea. Look at mm-hmm. I, I bought you three presents each, and a tree, and a tree. Wow. Yeah. So that was like our our intro to to Christ, uh, Christmas in America. So it wasn't built. My aunt is not like religious. She became religious later. You know what I mean? That's like you know people do that. So going back to that time, then. So for you as a, would you have been? Five? Yeah, it was five. Okay, so do you remember? No, I, no, 1975, December, I would have been six. Okay, so do you remember the six-year-old you, how you responded when you were given all of this extravagance? Yeah. I got, like, this really pretty red dress uh-huh. with white ruffles. They were like, this is nice. I mean, this is, <laughs> you get candy. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, look, 1974, Korea, which is, the, you know, would be the career I remember because we came in January of 1975, right? Right, right. I mean, even if you had money, mm-hmm. it just wasn't that much to buy. Mm-hmm. And to come to America in January of 1975, three weeks later, my dad saved enough money from work to buy a car. By December 1975, um, my parents were halfway to saving enough money to buy a house in the San wow. Fernando Valley. Like, the rapid upward mobility was just, like, mind-blowing. Wow. And then Christmas was like, what? Mm. You get a whole tree? (laughs) It was a real tree? No. Okay, okay. Because it was, like, the 70s. Yeah, When, like, plastic trees were so popular. Right, right, right. But all that tinsel, the (laughs) decorations, Mm -hmm. the gift wrapping paper, all that, you know. Back back then in Korea, you wasted nothing. You know, just wrapping something up and throwing away the wrapping paper. Mm. Oh yes, yeah, that was extravagant. This was an era when like kids were wrapping um, um, their school books with calendar paper, because mm-hmm. even calendar paper was like premium, right? Lower income kids were wrapping it with newspaper and they would get ink all over their hands. But you had special wrapping paper. Yeah, America just seems so extravagant. Mm-hmm. And back then, I mean, there's a huge difference between America. Really, was like a rich country. Mm. It's not this kind of dilapidated country we're seeing now. So, well, what is it about the U.S. at that point that struck you as as rich? I mean, obviously, you were in your you, as a six year old. There was so much to process just at home. But then maybe, maybe as you developed and you saw more of the city here, and you saw more on television. Where is it exactly that you started getting a sense that? That it was an extremely rich country, generally. You have to contrast that with what Seoul was like in 1974. So my family's upper class in in, in, in Seoul, in, in Korea. And so I had, like, very rich relatives. Um, mm. And, you know, back then, what was it? Like, South Korea had a car that was about about to come out, the Hyundai Pony. We didn't, it wasn't like... <laughs> the Pony. Yeah. <laughs> it, there wasn't that much, like modern infrastructure soul like they were like big empty plots that still had rubble left over from the war right and i come to america and my dad gets this nominal job and within months we already have so much more stuff than our rich relatives back home Mm. you know one of my relatives my uncle was a member of national assembly back then if you were met even now i mean you could take bribes kickbacks you could have access to all kinds of stuff my uncle didn't do that stuff but that's another story but come to america everybody has it looks like everybody has a car and there are roads everywhere everywhere big houses skyscrapers back then in korea even now you know 
how to have that much house, you have to be so rich. And um, a lot of uh, traditional Korean houses, Hanok, were raised before uh, for the, uh, before the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. Mm. But in 1974, they were still everywhere in Seoul. And they were small. If you had a three-bedroom Hanok, that was like big, you know. And a lot of houses still had um, outhouses. Lower-income people shared a community outhouse. And, and sometimes I really like... They're like, I meet Korean Americans or like, oh, was it like you saw that stuff because your family was poor or something? I was like, no, my family's fine. That's just what Seoul was. I don't think you understand. And my uncles had moved to um, um, Hangang Mansion. That's a, um, that was one of the first um, apartment complexes to be built. And that was specifically for middle class and rich people. One of the first apartment complexes to be built in that in city? Seoul, yeah. In Seoul? Yeah, in Seoul. Wow. Yeah, and it started, that those kinds of constructions started in, um, I think, like the late 60s. But it wasn't really until the early 70s and the mid-70s that people started, like, moving into them in significant numbers, and they were completed in significant numbers. And my other um, uncle lived in Pompo, so I'm well aware of the infrastructure and what was available back then. But you come to America, everybody has what would have been considered stuff for rich people. Mm. You go to a supermarket, there's so much stuff. Bananas. Yeah, bananas. <laughs> Everything seems so yeah. much cheaper. There's just, yeah, just all the stuff. It's like going from, like... Like, let's say even in America, it's like going from Victorville. Sure, <laughs> sure. To LA, mm. you know. <laughs> sure. I think that's a great uh, analogy for it, actually. Yeah. So, okay, so you had that first, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, that first introduction to Christmas, and you managed to pack so much of what that actually was about, you mm. know, in your description of it. So then did your parents decide to... Um, adopt that as like a family practice for their kids not consistently but okay. most of the time uh-huh so did you d- have things like christmas trees and, and yeah yeah what, in your own home yeah, we would have christmas trees um and my parents would buy christmas presents uh they stopped telling us it was from santa because they were just like we're not going to spend our hard-earned money on presents for our children and then tell them give credit to a white man it's like <laughs> what is that? Also, yeah, I feel like I feel like Santa is something a, a kind of mythical figure that you have to come into some familiarity with, maybe in your earliest toddler years. Yeah. Whereas if you're if you're six or seven and you kind of move to this country, and then yeah, like the mythical figure appears after the fact, it's gonna feel as though okay, that's that's random. I mean, when yeah. and why? So yeah. I, I can see how your parents didn't waste time on that because that's also maybe something that. Kids pick up at school at some point stories about Santa. Though I don't know that that's taking place now. I'm doubtful that it's taking place now the way it did before. Also, my parents were always very against white supremacy, so they really didn't like like a white grandfather mm. being given false credit for giving their children presents. Sorry, they Saint for Nick. It. Not in this that's household. Like yeah. So it's interesting because you mentioned your parents, and even when, when Helen posed the question about what the holiday has looked like for you. You said your family, and then I thought then, oh, your family during your youth, during your first days in the United States, as opposed to the family you have now, which is a a Gen Z family at the end of the day. And so I I think it's fascinating that, that, yeah, we sort of have to place these two in a perspective. And 
I wonder a little bit about what it has looked like for your kids more recently, given your background, given that your parents Mm -hmm. actually from the outset were already kind of not necessarily against the grain, Mm -hmm. but they were aware that that here's a country we would arrive to and here's here are ways to get our kids participating in the culture, but also like here are things we don't give up about ourselves. So yeah. it, it sounds like their influence was uh, profoundly moving for you and that you've sort of carried that throughout your life. I mean, given your work, yeah, given my, my what you speak about and write about. My parents and my um, older relatives, a lot of my older relatives, not all of them, but my parents and some of my older relatives were just hyper-politically aware. Um, I wonder if that had to do with like, because you also mentioned being relatively privileged back in Korea as a family. So I wonder if like education and then those resources, I wonder if those things inform the family in a different way than they would well, yeah, otherwise. Well, I mean, yeah, both sides of my um, family, my mother's family and my father's family, they were able to keep their land and social status through Japanese occupation. Which had to be a huge deal. Like I'm sure that... It is a huge deal yeah. because right. they were... Both families were highly so, literate. What would you say the rate of families who ha- who actually got to keep land and their homes during the colonization was relative to the rest of the Korean community? It's got to be really small. One, five percent, right. maybe. Right. It's okay. got to, it's, it's going to correlate to families who had the highest literacy because they would be able to have written deeds of their land. Um, they would have had to have social prominence in their community. Um, they would ha- be able to read and write classical Chinese that J- Japanese also used to be able to negotiate. So it would have been, I don't think it, it even reaches 5%. I, in my life, I, I haven't even met that many people. Like I didn't even start talking about this because when I do talk about this with Korean Americans, a lot of them are just even shocked. They had never even met a family that kept their land. So yeah, so um, being aware of geopolitics and hyper-local politics and national politics, it's ingrained in both sides of my family. Right. Yeah, so um, I mean, I think that kind of, um, it's really evident when anybody meets you for the first time that these are things that you inherited from your family. I mean, that's how you present yourself and that's how you negotiate yourself through the world, right? So, um, So I'm curious to know... I'm I'm curious to know two things, and they're kind of piggybacking off of what Jimmy asked. Um, so knowing all of those kind of cultural, like racial, you know, religious, all of those kinds of implications of what Christmas means and how it's presented. So then I'm curious how you, if you did at all, how you and your husband introduced Christmas as a tradition for your kids when they were little. Because I feel like that's also a different thing, right? Like mm-hmm. now your kids are young adults, so you may have a different way you engage in holidays and things like that but i feel like when kids are babies and little you know you kind of i i feel like you engage in things in a different way you know so i'm curious how that was for you and your husband when your kids were were young okay so now this brings in another thing okay my husband uh was born in france to algerian berber parents who fled algeria for france um right around like just before the War of Independence in Algeria from French uh, colonization. He grew up in France in a predominantly white village, white neighborhood called Montmerceau-Sonne. It's a little bit outside of Lyon. Lyon is uh, France's second largest city. 
in this little village. It's a very sophisticated village, right? It's um, it's where a lot of rich people have their second village homes. So it's beautiful. They have like, you know, like uh, an haute couture tailor and dressmaker there. So it's like very fancy. So he grew up liking like the visual aspects of Christmas. You know, we're human, you know. It's pretty. All those lights. <laughs> I love trees, your sympathy. You know, I, I'm human presence, too. Right? You know, his family didn't celebrate <laughs> it, but he got it through living in France. It's mm. it's part of the culture. You know, France mm-hmm. is a Catholic country, mm-hmm. right? Like America is a Presbyterian, and Protestant you, country. Did your husband's family have a religious? No, they were they were not religious when he was growing up. Mm-hmm. They were not religiously Muslim when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. They didn't practice um, Muslim holidays, but okay. by the same token, they didn't practice any Christian holidays either so you know he got uh christmas at school and with his friends right but he likes it you know so then my parents introduced my kids our kids to christmas your parents did. yes and this was my parents were like kind of buddhist christian on again off again churchgoers so um when my kids are born my parents were going to they usually all I mean, they usually choose, they always chose, like, more progressive Presbyterian churches. So I don't even know what evangelical Koreans are talking about sometimes. Like, that's not, like, even the totality of the Korean-American experience with um, Christianity. So my my husband really liked going to the kids' uh, Christmas show at my parents' church. Mm-hmm. He just loves it. You know, he's just, he can separate it. He's in a church. He's a non-practicing Muslim man in a... Korean-American Presbyterian Church in Burbank. <laughs> he just likes the festivities, you know? Right. So that, that, we're fine with that. And my kids actually ended up going to Korean-American Church many more years than I ever did. So your parents would take them? Is yeah, that, yeah. Okay. My parents would take them. My brother, my older, my oldest brother, Mike, would pick them up. And my kids were, for, for the most part, fine with that. Um, I was fine with it. But and you didn't go... No. You stayed home. The kids went to church with their church grandparents. I would go every once in a long while, but church makes me fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So and so, then when when is it that they had a transition? If so, from going to church regularly with their grandparents to um, politely declining. My parents, my dad, um, he came. Um, he started having mobility issues. So it was hard to take him to church. Um, we, my my family, my immediate family, my nuclear family now, with my husband and our two grown children, we moved a little bit further away. Um, my kids got older; they had other things to do, you know. And then college, so they moved away from the church that way, and got my it. mother stopped going as often too. Um, and then we just like the food. Sure, yeah. sure. We just like the food. It's like, we like gravy. <laughs> we like mashed potatoes. We like these foods, like, generally speaking, but it's just like November hits. We don't celebrate Thanksgiving. We do the food. And, you know, every time we eat the food, we talk about, you know, the genocide of Native Americans, indigenous, you know, and the fact that we don't sit there like, oh, you know, this is like the genocide of Native Americans, but we're aware of it. And, um, yeah, but we do the food. We like the food. We like the food. We don't do, in my own house, we don't do a Christmas tree. I just don't. I don't have the space for the decorations. I'm not really into the decorations. I don't really care. Oh, and so you never, you and your husband never brought a Christmas tree home? 
is it is it mostly that you all especially because of your husband you decided why don't we go check out these more public festivities kind of like you were saying well, my but parents at the used church to do a tree until fairly recently and so it's just go look at grandma and grandpa's tree <laughs> and then our own children just you know my my children just never really had an interest in having a tree inside our house either if we had a tree my husband wouldn't say anything but just, I don't have an interest. My kids don't have an interest. Wow. I mean, even just processing from a moment, your French, Algerian, Korean-American children yeah. mm. is a, a fascinating thought process in and of itself. But then to also hear that you all have these dinnertime conversations about the origins of such celebrations uh, as Thanksgiving is is also... Yeah, I think something a lot of parents are probably dealing with out there right now. I mean, we spoke with Quasi, who's also got uh, family in K-Town, who he's very gradually sort of introducing parts of his culture and, and parts of his family's culture to. And and I think what you're saying here is that you can have a little bit of all of it, as in, especially because of your parents, mm-hmm. that time between them and your children is a time when they get to partake in this old or maybe former way of doing the culture including american culture whereas time with you all is a little more about maybe yeah engaging in these discussions or these types of discussions and seeing how they're relevant to going forward for anyone who's got a relation to diaspora or who comes from a diaspora and i just want to clarify how we talk about thanksgiving we don't just talk about it at that time of the year sure so you know we talk about thanksgiving as you know the myth of the holiday what actually really happened. And then we're aware on Thanksgiving and every other day of the year that Native American people, indigenous people are still here with us, still struggling. And that, you know, the LA metropolitan area has the largest population of Native American indigenous people there. We're here living with them every day, not just like Thanksgiving. So I just want to clarify that because I was just going to like, I don't want to talk about people in the past tense who exist here now. Mm -hmm. That's right. And they're still like, you know, um, fighting for their struggle and their plight and their cause. Mm -hmm. Now, just for clarification, your, your kids did see our panel, I think. Oh yeah. They loved it. Right. I think I saw. Yeah. I think I saw your daughter maybe like reposting and like letting everybody know. Yeah, Yeah. That mom, oh, was, yeah. Super proud. mom was speaking yeah. up, yeah, <laughs> which was so cool to see. Yeah, they gave me a lot of positive feedback on the entire panel. Yeah, oh, I like really? that. Yeah, they thought it was really great. They <laughs> were like, so Wow, cool. this is really good. Oh, that's that's really cool. That's really special. Um, so then I'm kind of so I, I was noting the fact that though maybe you don't celebrate, um, Thanksgiving or, or, or Christmas in the way that maybe somebody would understand. There's certain things that you do, like the food, you know, you appreciate. And I'm assuming you don't eat that food in, like, April or July. So, de facto, it's a a kind of custom. It's a tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, you do it. And so, kind of curious, as an extension of that, do you have um, your nuclear family now, do you have, like, like an end-of-year tradition to mark this time of year? Well, we usually celebrate New Year's Eve together. Okay. Because... um, my kids are kind of like me. They don't really like to go out when it's too busy. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't feel safe. And a lot of, they feel like a lot of New Year's parties are just kind of like overpriced and overcrowded. 
<laughs> and I think they take that's so good overpriced, think, overcrowded. And I think they they take from like the Korean and probably Algerian tradition. Like you spend New Year's with your family, like that's the best way to end it and then begin it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, New Year's, especially now. You know, my daughter's twenty five, and so she's been old enough to like drink and make her make cocktails for the family. So we we'll always do like cocktails cocktails by camila <laughs> i love that cocktails with a k that's, that's an instagram handle Brandon. coming up yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> it's always our joke cocktails with a k um yeah because she had she was the editor-in-chief of her high school newspaper of she course she own, was and she also did glendale's underground teen news, newsletter oh, oh wow so she had to do both <laughs> like what she had to call him camila's corner Nice. Or like spell it with a K. Yes, yes. Anyway, cocktails by Camila. And then for New Year's, we like to do finger foods. We like to do a combination of like, we like the French charcuterie. We've been doing French charcuterie boards since before they were trendy. I mean, my husband likes it. Like salami, yeah, cheese. Yeah, a picnic. Yeah. Yeah. What is there not to like about that? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Dried fruits, nuts, olives. Oh, what else we do? And we do like, we do like different kinds of finger foods. It really depends. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I do a year-end holiday party. It's just a general holiday party. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I don't think I have time to do that this year. There's just too much going on. Yeah. But last year we did that, and that was like Asian themed. Mm-hmm. So it's like almost everybody that was invited was AAPI. Sometimes I just do stuff like that. Yeah. Because I just want to talk shit sometimes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when you know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, it's like. You know, Americans and their s- s- false sense of individualism. Like, we had a great conversation. There was a, I can't remember, it was a major, I think it was at Ma- MIT, but it was something with a major platform where they published a photo of a white man wearing a plaid shirt and a beanie. And it was a, about how white hipster men, in trying to be so individualistic, they all end up looking the same. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And then a white man who was not the white man of the photo started sending these irate emails to the publisher and saying, that's a photo of me. And it wasn't him. <laughs> wow. And that this we have like to proved, link in the show right? notes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And there's a funny thing like, you know, um, how like sometimes, you know, American stereotype like Asians and Koreans as being like, why do Koreans all like the same thing? It's like, we don't really care. Like, all, all, like 90% of us wearing a Burberry coat doesn't make us think, oh, wow, I can't tell you apart from the other Korean, right? We don't care about these things. So, like, you know, in America, it's like, you be you, I'll be me. In Korea, it's like, you be you, I'll be you. I don't really care. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, as soon as I said that, like, almost every, all the AAPI in the room were like, yeah, Americans and their false individualism. I would never mistake a photo of another Korean woman as right, being me. Right. There's so many details about me that I know. <laughs> I could recognize my hands, my you know, small hands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my lips. You know, I could recognize yeah. so many things yeah. about me. Know yourself, know thyself. Can yeah. I tell a quick little story that is um, kind of a tangent? It just adjacent. It reminded me. So I had an experience. Like, could I tell myself apart from another Asian woman? I think so. But anyway, I was invited. <laughs> um, uh, I guess I'll keep some of the details under wraps. But I was invited to do a presentation at this um, graduate class at a university. And then so I was getting ready to do my thing. And it was on Zoom. It was kind of a hybrid. So 
the class um, students were together and then I was, you know, um, called in on Zoom. So I can see an image of them all kind of looking up at a projection. So they're kind of looking up like this and then I'm looking at them. Anyway, so I'm about to do my thing. And then the professor says, oh, actually, so-and-so, the student has prepared a little bio to, you know, introduce, um, you know, our speaker for the day. And then so um, she starts saying, yes, this is um, Helen Kim, and she graduated from this school, and she has an art show in Boston Museum right now, and she has a dog. And then I'm just like, "Oh, these are not details about my life. And then they presented a picture of this woman, and I was like, is that really me? I had like an existential crisis because she was so confident in talking about Helen Kim, and I'm like wait, do I have a dog? Do I really look like that? <laughs> I had I a, literally a had like a split second where I was confused. And then um, I tried to like send a little private message to or DM to the um, the professor saying, um, what do I do here? Because this is not me. And then um, finally, when that picture of the woman came up, then the professor said, oh, pardon me, is that you, Helen? And I said, no, that is not me. And then of course, I got to say, I'm the other Helen Kim. Ba-da-dum. I was wow. gonna say, is that leading up to that? Yeah, I mean that was even before um, I, I had crazy. called myself, but yeah, yeah. So I had this sort of slightly flipped version she of that. She just put all this material together. Yeah, because and you know, in her defense, she'd never met me, and there she is not Korean. She looked it up, so she didn't know that there are like a million Helen Kims, and so she looked up Helen Kim. And she looked up artist, and then this other person came up, so she went with it. Right. right. And I actually had to apologize because that other Helen Kim was much more accomplished than I was. You always say that. <laughs> so you always I had to be that. like, oh, but so you should have just other. verified this. I know, and she was mortified, but I actually kind of loved it because I really love awkward moments. Mm-hmm. And so I love the mortification she was feeling. Not right. in a mean way, but I'm just like, oh, right. this is delicious awkwardness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You just, yeah. ra- like, you're looking at her like, you just ran with this bad idea. Yeah. You just ran with this assumption. At no point did you correct yourself. And it's like the white man who thought he was the white man in that photo. He never corrected himself. Well, so then when the professor kind of interjected and then like the the student like went into a panic and um, I said, you know, actually, I kind of love this. I would love to hear more about this Helen Kim. And so I think she was so panicked. She continued with the introduction of this other person. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Wow. So that's my tangent story i mean it's kind of like saying look i I think to some extent what susan is also saying is like check in i mean i don't know if this i don't know if this student was assigned that at the last minute or something to that effect but like check in and communicate with especially folks who are taking the time to go and speak with your class or something to this effect yeah because yeah this can happen and and clearly it's going to lead to loads of awkwardness that you would much rather avoid by so much as making the slightest overture and DMing or emailing yeah. or just checking twice before going off what you read on a single entry. Yeah, but on, I mean, it worked Google. out for me. Now I have sure. a story to tell. Now you have like three handles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now you're yeah. always yeah doing that handle. So, I mean, if you ever wondered where Helen gets the other from, this is a part of that, I think. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't literally from that story, but, you know, uh, yeah, this idea of, um, well, anyway, uh, I feel like I took us totally off track. What were we talking about before this? <laughs> we were talking about you and Jimmy, bring us back. Well, it's all in the mix. I mean, when we set this up, we said, let's talk a little bit about what the holidays looked like 
what they looked like previously for you and actually what they've looked like more recently. And I think you've given us a great picture of what that's been for you. Um, I mean, to be certain, what are you all prepping for this Sunday evening on Christmas Eve? Is there any specific itinerary that you have in mind already or have you not even gotten a chance to talk or, about it with your family? Or Z. We do plan. Yeah. We do mm-hmm. plan. So my son is going to go back up to Berkeley for a couple of days to do some stuff up there because he came, what was it, last Wednesday? Mm-hmm. So he's going to be here for like over a month, right? So he wants to go back to Berkeley, do a couple of things, and then he's coming back down Christmas Eve. So we decided to have our meal Christmas Day. Oh, cool. Um, we've been eating a lot of like fall winter holiday food because of leftovers and my husband just loves turkey shepherd's pie. Oh, so I actually bought another whole turkey and made two trays of turkey shepherd's pie for him. So we've just been eating a lot of like kind of rich holiday foods. Wow. Um, so for Thanksgiving and like throughout November, we generally do like, okay, I'm just calling the white people sides. You know, <laughs> just American, European. Let's just list those to be certain. Yeah. Uh, okay, so do um, orange, lemon, garlic, glazed carrots, which is actually a little bit, it's a little bit North African too. Um, we did, oh, we did switch it up a little bit. We added a little bit more Mediterranean, North African stuff. So we do green beans every year. But this year we decided to do almond and lemon green beans which is with olive oil which is actually algerian um but still you know it's like traditional thanksgiving sides right but with the with an algerian recipe um we did stuffing with a focaccia Mm. got it yum yeah so much food oh oh then we did asparagus all the photos are on my instagram but yeah and then we did did this is all documented oh we also did um duck lake confit which oh, is French. Wow. My husband is a French trained chef. <sighs> we did duck confit. Your kids are eating too I know. well. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It has to be said. And set. wash it down with no, cocktail with When the my daughter was in junior high and my son was in, no, in, in high school. My daughter was in high school and my son was in junior high. We're in the car and my son is like, okay, so Nuna, because he's younger. Nuna and I were talking about this. We both know that we have to learn how to cook really well and make a lot of money to eat the way, as adults, the way right. we ate growing up. Yeah. And, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's Thanksgiving, not the holiday, but the meal. Yes. Was, yeah, we did more yeah, Algerianized sides, yeah. But it's like vegetables you would recognize. I'm just blanking on what else. Oh, we did chanterelle mushrooms. And we did these um, foraged Korean mushrooms, too, that are like. Oh, that's got to be cool. Yeah. So we did high-end mushrooms, too. We like to do that. High-end mushrooms? Well, they're expensive. <laughs> <laughs> they're expensive. Mushrooms are expensive, like truffles these are or like, whatever. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Like really expensive yeah. ones where they're like priced by the ounce. Right. Because right. the pound price was Because they only you. like grow like at one time in the year. And yeah, yeah and you have, have to forage for them. It's just very sensitive. So you mentioned a little while ago or a few minutes ago that you have a discussion about the menu. Oh, yeah, we always want the menu so together. So I'm assuming you've already had the discussion about the New Year's Eve menu? No, not yet. Okay. We talk about we're what we're going to... Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, Christmas first. Okay. New Year's, we're going to do the cocktails and finger foods and charcuterie. Uh-huh. Board. Okay. Um, 
Christmas, we never pray before eating. Mm-hmm. Tell you that. We just don't. Well, I assume, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be strange if suddenly a, you're like, we're irreligious, but then we have like a five-hour prayer meeting. Do a sous vide um, roast beef, and then we like to do two meats. Uh-huh. So I don't know what the second meat. We've been doing so duck a lot. You say we, like, is there a division of labor? Who cooks what? Um, yeah, there's always a division of labor. And do you, is that part of the plan? Like, you know who's going to do what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that We did that for Thanksgiving. My daughter made the mac and cheese. Uh-huh. My son did the spatch-cocked turkey. Wow. And he just loves saying it's spatch-cocked. Yeah. <laughs> 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 even though he's 20, there's always a 12-year-old boy oh, yeah, inside forever. every man. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I like, can yeah, affirm this. Spatch-cocked, spatch-cocked, spatch-cocked. <laughs> He did the turkey. My husband did the mashed potatoes. Um, I do, uh, like, the majority of the cooking, but then my husband washes the dishes. Mm -hmm. Um, Our kids set the table. Our kids wash the dishes and put away all the dishes afterwards. So, yeah, there's a division of labor. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. how it was in my, like, parents' household, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, my dad helped my mom cook. My oldest brother, like, always cooks during the holidays, and he cooks regularly, so that's just... Yeah, I was just curious, because you have basically two, like, high-end chefs in the house, so I don't know how that works with, like, two maestros, you know, trying to... Well, the kids are really good. I bet, of course, they grew up, like, eating that stuff, seeing you make that stuff, so yeah. Yeah, Camille has her special mac and cheese, she makes a big Le Creuset casserole of it, but we eat it up so much, so she's, like, four different cheeses... Yes, Whoa. I always love more cheese on uh-huh. cheese. Yeah. Wow. wow. I mean, this is definitely a holiday treat kind of episode because we've been snacking. We're talking about food with a food connoisseur. Yeah, it's a whole lot of eating for you during this time. And I just clearly make too much food, just like my mom. Mm-hmm. So I make enough food to feed an entire other family. Of course. That's why you started. That's why you and your husband started a program feeding yeah. families. Yeah, I just can't help during it. the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just can't help it. Yeah. So there's always enough food for like a few additional guests to come in, stop by. Um, always enough food for me to like, because my mother doesn't really want to do all that food. Mm. You know, she never cooked all the holiday American holiday foods anyway. Like my brothers and I did that when we were little. Yeah. Does she enjoy eating the food though? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm. Both of my parents, they love, like, different kinds of foods, different cuisines. Oh, they, they, they and actually, are your parents coming over for the New Year? Well, so my father passed away. Yeah. Oh. So my mother might come over. Okay. We've invited her, we invited her over for Thanksgiving, but she said she just wasn't ready yet. Mm. But um, for Christmas and New Year's, yeah, we're going to extend that invitation. Mm-hmm. My kids can go pick her up. Yeah. It's really great having, like, a 20-year-old and a 25-year-old. <laughs> Adult <laughs> who are mobile. Yes. Yeah, who are mobile. They can yeah. drive. They can pick up. Oh, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> my husband and I talk about it. We're like a dual income family, dual income couple with kids, but no kids. Uh huh. Yeah. Because our kids, you know, they have jobs, they earn their way through life. My son, you know, he's working his way through college. He has not asked for money. Amazing. Once every three months, he does try to like jack up some treats on a credit card that I pay for. But other than that, <laughs> it's like he's paying for his Makes rent. Makes sense for a 20 year old. Grew up relatively spoiled. Yeah. Because he was like really like tightening his belt. It was just, I'm looking at the credit card bills and he's not spending much of anything. Mm. So that was like, he moved for this, you know, school year, he moved up to Berkeley and like 
mid-June. Mm-hmm. So like, looking at the bills, it's like June, July, August, September. Not much, right? That's like, that's really good discipline for a kid who's just really... Who just moved to college, yeah. yeah. And then October, I see this big spike. He's eating out. He's shopping. Wow. <laughs> like, you got to pay a lot of that down. I'll pay, yeah. I'll pay a good bulk of it because I'm really proud that you are doing all this. You know, and I don't want you to go from being, like, pampered to, like, you know, like, you quit cold turkey or something. That's not reasonable. <laughs> it's like, and also, I, I save a lot of money without him at all. Right. I bet. Our grocery bill is yeah. 75% less. <gasps> With just him gone? Just with him. Wow. He eats as much as my daughter and I combined, plus another person. <laughs> Crazy. He's 6'2". Six wow. Three. Wow. Man. Well, Susan, thank you so much. This has been like an incredible time. Yes. I learned so much. That's right. That's right. We could go in so many different directions, and I feel as though we, we got a glimpse into all of your storytelling via food and and the holiday season and also how we yeah twist a little bit of these traditional holidays to suit us because why wouldn't we i i've had a lot of fun and i am curious if there's one or a few things on say the new year's eve menu that maybe you can spoil for camila or your son maybe give them a slight heads up about through this combo what has to be on there for you or your husband for sure this this upcoming year? I think we're going to do some, like, North African and Middle Eastern, like, savory pastries. Ooh. Ooh oh. Would they be, like, meat pastries? <coughs> meat, cheese. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Spiced potatoes. Okay. So North Africans have, um, it's like phyllo pastry sheets, but it's uh, called warka or foie de brick. Or malsuka, and it's made differently than foie de brick. So it's um, it's a loose kind of like very loose dough that's pounded, tapped onto a hot plate, um, and that's how the pastry sheet is made. So it's very thin, and it's more porous than uh, phyllo, mm. and that's used to make like any any number of sweet and savory crispy pastries. Th- just think of kind of like egg roll, spring roll, uh huh, okay. you know, fried phyllo. Yeah. So we're gonna make stuff with that. Um, I'm going to make some savory things with that. I'm going to make almond cookies with that, almond fingers. And then my daughter's boyfriend is also Palestinian. Mm -hmm. So I recently I got into some Palestinian pastries that are really good. So I made pita, you know, and uh, manakish. And that's kind of regional. I've been to Turkey, so I've had similar dishes, like, Mm. on the soil that it's made. Mm. So I'm going to do that kind of stuff. Okay, love it. Yeah. Wow, truly global. Yeah. Well, okay, so before we wrap up, um, if you could just give us a couple of highlights of things that are coming up for you and your organization in 2024, just to give a shout out. Anything to look out for. Yeah. My nonprofit, um, yeah, we have multiple goals, and we're actually expanding um, kind of all of our uh, strategic programs. So one of them is increasing food security. Mm-hmm. So we got a market match program renewed for another year when the market managers wanted to shut it down after, you know, at the end of this year. So we got it expanded for next, uh, renewed for next year. Where is that program based? At West Adams Farmers Market. West Adams Farmers Market. So right. when I first started uh, translating for Korean seniors there, that was like mid-May of this year. 
the market was only getting like 30 to 50 of the same Korean seniors every Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And then after That's when I it started, takes place? Just yeah. once a week on Wednesdays? Yeah. Wednesday evenings? No, Wednesday afternoons from Wednesday 2 afternoons. to 5.30. Okay. And then after I started and I started getting the word out, um, the market exploded within ma- months. But currently we're at about, like the first and second Wednesdays of the month, we're at about 600 to 700 Korean seniors who come for the pr- uh, coupons. And that's unique seniors. And then uh, the third, fourth, fifth Wednesdays of the month, it's anywhere from 300 to 600 unique Korean seniors to come. So that's just exploded. And we're going to get more people next year. Um, we're, we're a subcontractor on a five-year um, LA DOT contract. And that's to provide, it's a five-year contract. Mm-hmm. We started off as a six-month pilot program. Five-year contract uh, to provide increased Korean language access and AAPI language access and just other like languages that, you know, if we um, know there's a need for like indigenous language access and we're going to do that and we'll work with my CLO and other groups on that. So that went from six months to five years. And there are a few more things. We have um, a grant writer now. Oh, amazing. Super experienced <gasps> grant writer. Wow. Because I just reached my individual capacity yeah. on writing, implementing, reporting, no. managing. It's too much. And yeah. this person has a lot of experience uh, working at corporations and, you know, key offices. Let's say he knows, like, inside stuff. So that's really exciting. Come on down. Amazing. Super exciting. But, I mean, again, thank you so much. This has been, like, such an enriching conversation. Yes. I'm also yes. salivating, and I've been trying to figure out how I can crawl into your family and just, right. you know, suddenly become the third. <laughs> yeah, and you said that you have an invitation for us at your spot at some yeah. point. So we're going to take you up on that and yeah, and see what we can put together here because it's just a lot of fun catching up with you. And I think we need more of these combos, kind of like you were saying about our panel, without uh, the tropes, without the scripted talking points. Combos in which we really get to ask each other questions about where we're coming from and and where we're going so this has been that very much and i really have had a lot of fun with both of yeah. you this morning yeah thanks for having me yeah. is this going to be edited though for clarity because we just kind of went along always the is yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i'm so glad for that now happy holidays to all of you yes listeners and to jimmy Susan. really happy yeah. new year and jimmy, everything <laughs> Bye for now. All right, y'all, until the next time.